Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this is our last sermon on this series on the Beatitudes. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, pretty quick here, really quick here, try to do a, a bit of a, of a review. We'll read our passage first, and then I'll do a little bit of a, of a review. And then we'll talk about this last, this last blessing. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. And we ask this morning, Lord, that your, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Whatever we say, whatever we read, whatever we think, Lord, you be the teacher. And show us what the blessed life is like. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, that's Jesus. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. And those last two, verses 10 and 11, those are the ones that we're going to um, concentrate on today. But let me just give you a, a quick review. Uh, so Jesus, uh, this is the very beginning of the ministry and uh, in, in the book of Matthew. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is his first sermon uh, uh, in the book. And anytime, in, in, when you start reading any of the Gospels, read that first sermon and pay attention to that first sermon, even if it's just one verse. I think in Mark it might just be one verse. But uh, the first time Jesus offers a teaching in any of the books, uh, that is his uh, that, that is sort of that, that is sort of the theme throughout the whole book. Okay, so when when it comes to Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, well, that's a huge sermon. In Mark, it might just be one verse. In in uh, in Matthew, it's three chapters. But when you look at that, you see, wow, this is the theme for the whole book. This is everything. Uh, and so Jesus here, I think um, the, the way I I like to visualize it um, is that he's on a mountainside. And there are crowds of people around him, but he's really just talking to the twelve at this point. Uh, I think the whole Sermon on the Mount is things that he's teaching to everybody, but at the Beatitudes here at the beginning, I really, I almost look at it as, as him just talking to the twelve. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe he is talking to the whole crowd. But I, I see him, uh, after having done ministry in a village down below, he comes up on the mountainside and said, let's, let's sort of debrief a little bit about what we just saw down there, because we saw all kinds of people down there. We ministered to all kinds of people down there. We preached and taught to uh, all kinds of people down there. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there are certain people who are ready for the kingdom of God. There are certain people that are ready for the kingdom of heaven. They are ready to receive the gospel. Others are not. And so in your ministry, remember these things. This is kind of the way I, I visualize it. And for you in your ministry, for you, as you share the gospel with people, as you get close to people, get to know people, and try to uh, share life with them, remember some of these things. You will encounter people who are ready to hear the gospel. They are ready, desperate, begging for, the, for good news in their life. And there are other people who are very hardened and very, very uh, opposed to it. And they are not ready. 
yet. Okay, and I, I, I know that some people are just never ready. Their hearts are never in the place where they can accept the good news. But I have to believe that God is always pushing people either in this direction towards Him or so far away from Him that they come back. That is always, I think I, think I, can, even, I can defend that scripturally, um, that He either pushes you towards Him, pulls you towards Him, or He pushes you so far away that you actually come back. Um, and so Jesus looks at the crowd and He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, so the first thing Jesus is saying here is, if you encounter somebody who is poor in spirit, that's a person that's ready for good news. That's a person that's ready to hear the gospel. That's a person who's ready to hear uh, that God has ha, wants to bring them close, wants to forgive them, wants to restore all relationship with them. But if you if you um, encounter somebody who has all the answers, I'm not sure that they're ready to hear the answer. They're not ready to hear the good news because they already know everything. All right. And then Jesus said, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Because they know the world is awful and, and the world can be such a hurtful place and they've experienced all kinds of hurt in their life. They are ready for good news that the hurt can be healed, the pain can go away, and joy can, can replace it. But there are other people who are not ready. They're not mourning. They're angry. They're, they have revenge in their heart or they have stubborn pride in, 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 place, in, in that place. They, they are not ready. There are people who are meek, and those people are ready to hear and be taught and be conformed and be shaped by the Lord. They are ready to be conformed to the image of Christ, a wonderful, beautiful image. But there are other people out there who are not meek. They are not ready to learn. They are not ready to be molded. They are hardened, and they desire to dominate. Those people are not ready for good news. You can go all the way down through there, and you can look at the opposite. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or, or, or how about this? Cursed are, is everybody who just longs for evil, yearns for more and more evil in their life. Is there anything good waiting for them? Will they be satisfied by evil? Of course not. Blessed are the merciful. They'll obtain mercy, but not so much for everybody who just wants to judge and condemn everyone else but never take a good long look in the mirror. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who are wholly devoted to the Lord. But not so much everybody who has all kinds of different angles working for their own selfish ends. Blessed are the peacemakers, because people will look at them and say, Wow, you're just like Jesus. But everybody who sees every relationship as combative, they are not. They will not be called sons of God. They may be called sons of something else. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those people are the ones who are ready, really ready for the kingdom of heaven because they have looked at all the kingdoms of the world and they have said, I'm ready to step out. I'm ready to step out of those kingdoms. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about why persecution happens. Why does persecution happen? I want to talk about um, the effort to remain neutral. Everybody wants to try to remain neutral, and it's very hard to remain neutral. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about um, how the Christian responds to persecution. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about why persecution happens. Persecution happens uh, 
uh, because of this reason right here. Societies, in order to exist, a society has to have some kind of ideal or teaching or belief or practice or something to unify around. They have to unify around that. If nobody is unified around anything at all, you do not have a society. You have anarchy. You have people living parallel lives at best, but probably at war at worst, because they don't have a unified um, belief system. If anybody is in a society, there's, there is some truth that the vast majority of people will all cling to and say, yes, that is right and good. I believe that, and since that is at the, the core of who we are and what we believe, we actually can get along pretty well here. Okay, uh, And everything that that society does will push people to conform to, that, that, to unity in that set of beliefs and in that... Uh, that, that um, those statements or those practices, those things right there, there will be a pressure always to conform to that. And it's not always bad. It's not always bad for a, I mean, it's, it's not bad at all. Persecution's always bad, but for a, for a, um, uh, for a society to have this unified set of beliefs, it has to or it cannot exist. And not all of those unified uh, beliefs or all those sets of principles and values are always evil. Uh, there are a lot of good things that people can unify around. But they're, often they're not ultimate. They're not ultimate. Uh, but when somebody decides to step outside of that and oppose that set of values, that the unity around which the society is based and formed, um, then there becomes a pressure. There becomes a pressure. And there becomes a threat. So for everybody that remains in unified with that, that common principle, that common value, um, there becomes a threat to them that somebody out there is opposing it. Somebody out there is opposing it. And if you're the one out there opposing it or not conforming to it or uh, sort of pointing out the holes in it or something like that, um, they, are, they will feel like they are being marginalized and they are being pushed out. And so... Anybody who doesn't conform to the likeness is, is marginalized and pushed away. And this happens in many different ways and to many different degrees about all kinds of things. Okay, uh, When I was thinking about all of this, uh, actually one thing came to my mind, uh, and that is fashion. That is fashion. Okay? Uh, in our culture, there is uh, a sort of a unity of fashion. Do you see what I'm wearing right here? I am wearing the man's uniform. Nearly every, basically every man in here is wearing some variant of what I am wearing right now. Uh, it may not be exactly like it, but basically every man in here is wearing this right here. Okay? Uh, and uh, I, I was thinking about this because I have, I have had a problem throughout my life. Uh, when you are short and fat, you have this problem that, uh, and, and it was very bad for me in high school, but it's not so bad for me these days, but um, the back of your cuff on your pants right here, because your pants are big here, uh, I, I don't know, somebody who makes clothes can tell the ratio has to stay a certain width. And so the very bottom of my pant leg is, 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 all, is bigger than if somebody's got a, a, a smaller waist here, then that, that cuff at the bottom of their pant leg is also smaller. And so they don't walk on their pants. They don't walk on their jeans. But since I'm short and, and the, the opening at the bottom of my pant leg is, is large, I, I, I have had the problem of stepping on the bottom of my jeans. Okay? All right? 
Uh, if you're tall and thin, you've never had that, you don't understand, okay? So, so this is what I was thinking about. All right. Uh, you know what the best fashion would have been for me throughout all my life? Do you remember the knee breeches that Benjamin Franklin wore and high stockings? Those would have been perfect for me. I would have never uh, frayed the, the, the back of my of my pants, the back of the, the pant leg of my jeans. It would have been perfect. Probably would have been cooler even, all right? Would have been very, uh, very logical and, and adequate for all of my activities, right? Um, but would I have been persecuted for that in high school? If I came to, if I came to high school dressed like Benjamin Franklin with, with knee britches on like that, would I have been persecuted? Yes, I would have. Yes, I would have. It would have been very bad. I, it, it would have been relentless. They would have marginalized me. Nobody would have wanted to be seen with me. Every interaction I have with people would have been them making fun of me. All right? Worse yet, very few people would feel sorry for me. I have a feeling even my own mother would look at me and say, Well, son, look how you're dressed. <laughs> Mom, everybody treats me bad at school. Son, you're wearing Benjamin Franklin knee britches. You have invited this upon yourself. But if it comes to more serious things, serious beliefs, serious threats to society, guess what? People can have the same reactions. There are people out there who believe things that are a little bit different, but they still invite persecution on themselves. And other people will say, I'm sorry, I can't feel bad for them. They brought that on themselves. Look at the radical things they do. Look at the radical things they believe. Look at how weird they are. Look at how different from the rest of us they are. They have invited it upon themselves. Uh, I even consider them to be dangerous. So whatever, whatever bad treatment they get, they deserve it. They deserve it. When it be comes to a laughable fashion situation, okay, we can all giggle. But when it comes to something else like that, okay, it becomes much more serious. Uh, and we have this problem in our, our, our country because um, we're a melting pot and we bring in all kinds of people and all kinds of people from different parts of the world. And when they come here... They expect to be able to uh, culturally live like they did back home. They, they want things to be better than they did back home, but when they come here and live exactly like they did back home, they'll, they'll, they'll start running up against society's disapproval of, of whatever that is. And it can be bad for them. And sometimes we say, well, they invited that upon themselves. Or sometimes we say, how, how horrible it is, but I'm not going to change. I can't change our set values. Or maybe we should change some of our set values. It's hard to say. The fact is, even in church, uh, even in church, we have this set uh, of values, this set of beliefs that we have. We recite it uh, once a month. It's called the Apostles' Creed. We believe this. We believe this strongly. Do we persecute anybody who doesn't believe in this? No, or at least we think we don't. But if somebody came to this church and said, I don't believe any of this, but I'd still like to teach Sunday school, what are we going to do? We're going to say, I'm sorry. That, that doesn't happen. We're going to marginalize you. We're going to, we're going to let you worship with us. I'd let anybody worship with us, but I'm not going to let anybody here, just anybody here. I'm not going to let just anybody teach Sunday school. I'm not going to let just anybody represent us by singing on stage up here if their beliefs, lifestyle, all of that don't conform to this book and what this book teaches. Um, I, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm too harsh. Uh, because this is a very, uh, uh, very short, as far as doctrinal statements from Christianity, this is the shortest one we got. 
And if anybody has a, a problem with some of these, that's that's a serious thing because these are very uh, this is a very basic set of of beliefs. People have come to me and said, "I don't understand this line," or "I'm not sure I agree with that line." And a lot of times, as as they uh, explain themselves, I say, "No, no, no. I think you actually you do. Uh, maybe you just don't like the phrasing or the vocabulary chosen here, but actually." Most of the time when I talk to people about this, um, actually they do they do more or less believe in this. And if somebody said, I don't, I don't believe all of that, this is the problem I have, I'm willing to hear you out. I'm willing to hear anybody out. Um, because I want to, we want to be, as a church, we want to be as inclusive as we possibly can. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of that because I can tell you that uh, when, I look, when I get to know people here, our spectrum of... Uh, spiritual heritage, our spectrum of background is very broad, is very broad here. Uh, there's hardly a denomination that we don't have somebody from, okay? And if, if that's the case, we're being about as, as broadly ecumenical as, a, as an evangelical possibly can. Uh, and even with political and moral beliefs, we have a very broad uh, spectrum of people here. Some people here who have a very strict lifestyle, some people here who have a, a much less strict lifestyle, or very strict, very conservative political beliefs, or very progressive political beliefs. We've got them all uh, in here. I think we're being about as inclusive as we possibly can. Any more inclusive, uh, then it might, it might be hard. It might be hard for us. But it is, it is important for us to be as inclusive as we can without compromising this book and what, uh, what the Bible tells us uh, how we ought to live, how a Christian ought to live. But in the United States right now, it's getting harder and harder to remain neutral on several different things. There are a lot of, of, of there's a lot of pressure. Okay, so we, uh, just, just to, to back up here, um, I think everybody in here is an American citizen. Okay, so here we are, American citizens, and, and um, we're, we're, we're set together by this set of um, possibly American beliefs, what you've got here. But in the United States, but in the, in the United States, this, the people in this room right here and watching online are also part of a subsection, a subsociety called Christian. Okay, so here we are, uh, evangelical Christians in a broader uh, society. And in the past, it hasn't uh, been very hard to be an evangelical Christian in the broader American society. Maybe some would say it's still not, uh, still not very hard. Some people would say, no, it's getting harder all the time. But here we are, this, this subgroup. Uh, and in the past, uh, there have been times, and maybe there have always been times. In fact, I, when I think about it, I think, yeah, of course, there have always been times when our Christianness and our Americanness uh, get very much at odds uh, with each other, and we have to choose one over the other. And if that ever happens, if that ever happens, what does Jesus tell us to do? He, uh, it's very clear in the Bible: you step out from among them and be ye separate. Okay. You have one loyalty. You have one um, one citizenship, and that is uh, in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and it, in your in our in, in your political affiliation, I, I would think that most people have felt a little bit of tension, a little bit of tension in um, what their political party pushes and what the Bible teaches. All right, and I will say this: there's this strong there, there's even there, there's even a law that Churches are supposed to remain politically neutral. And that would be fine with me if politicians would remain morally, religiously neutral. But they don't do that. They frustrate me all the time. 
Because do you know all it takes for a church to get political? All it takes is for a government official to stand up and say, I believe this. And if that's contrary to the Bible, then guess what? Every once in a while, I'm going to run across a verse or a passage where I have to teach or preach something that is contrary to what some government policy is. All it takes is for one government official to set a policy or make a statement or try to write a law, and then all of a sudden we become quite political. All right. So I don't know, I, I don't know, and I don't know what your political affiliation is. Some of you I do, but some of you I don't. But every once in a while, um, your, your political party will say things that ought to, ought to grate against, uh, uh, your spirit a little bit. I'll try to give a, I'll try to give a couple of examples here. First from the right and then from the left. Um, so on the political right, on the political right, uh, and I, I've, I've grown up hearing it and seeing it all, all my life because, it's uh, very pervasive in the South. There is this very strong push or strong belief that um, the United States of America and the kingdom of God is the same thing that just sort of overlap with each other, all right? And, and your Christianness and your Americanness are one and the same, and, and they're really there uh, together. And in the South right now, I have a, a good friend that's a pastor, and he's doing everything he can to push against that. And he is getting incredible backlash from the people in his church. So trying to uh, sort of separate your Christianness and your Americanness in some parts of this country is very, very difficult. And there's this strong pressure to view them as one and the same, okay? So uh, as Susie, I remember when Susie came, she was in China, she came back to the United States. We, we, we always, it was about this time of year uh, that the school season in China would end and we would all get on planes and come back home. And uh, one time she went to church with her family. She's from Wisconsin. She went to church in Georgia. And there was, and it was around the 4th of July weekend, and there was a celebration in the church that was very much themed uh, in that way, that the, the kingdom of God and the United States of America are, are, are one and the same thing. And it really hurt her. This is her first time coming back from China when she has seen the kingdom of God outside of the borders of the United States. And she's starting to see uh, the global Christian kingdom of God, the global church. And then she came back, and first thing, she needed, she needed the gospel that morning. She didn't need patriotism. And that's when she went to church, she got something that just really rubbed against her very badly. And she was crying through the whole service, through the whole service. And not that she hates America or anything. She's, she's very patriotic. But her soul needed something that she did not get that day. And when she went to church that day, she, she expected to hear the message of one kingdom and she got the message of another. And that really grated against her. Okay. Uh, if you're on the political left, let's, uh, let's see, let's see who else I can offend. I'll try to offend everybody here today as best as I can. On the political left, um, starting a few years ago, you started to hear something or this message, this uh, this new this new progressive um, group of civil rights um, that that I really hope would grate against people a little bit, because at the very beginning, at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, what does it say about the creation of human beings? It says God created them, male and female. He created them. So how many genders did God create? He created two. He created two. Uh, I was arguing with somebody about this uh, recently, or somebody was telling me some, some things that they heard. I wasn't really arguing. 
uh, they were telling me something that they had heard, a push that they had heard. Uh, the person said, do you think God really cares about gender? And I thought that was really interesting because, yes, uh, he obviously does. In fact, when he, when he created us, he created them male and female. That's what it says. That's the distinctive. When God created them, he created them male and female. And is that the thing that really makes us human? Don't, don't mammals and dogs, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't all animals out there, don't even most plants have gender? Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created the plants. Male and female, I mean, tomato plants, I think you have to put two of them together. Male and female, he created tomato plants. Male and female, he created all farm animals and all wild animals to, to reproduce that way. Why didn't God say he made them walk upright? Because that is something that makes us very distinct as humans. We're, we walk upright. And then why didn't God say God made them with opposable thumbs? That's the distinctive right there. Why didn't he say God, when God made them, he made them with a larger brain capacity? Why didn't it say that? Why does it say he, he, he created the male and female instead of all these other things that make us distinctly human? And I, I don't know. I, I can't get into the mind of God and ask him, why, why did you point out that distinctive as opposed to all the other things that make humans distinct? Uh, maybe he would say, well, for just such a time as this. Uh, that's why. That's why. And so how many genders are there in the world's eyes? Uh, on, on Facebook, I, 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 it was, it was uh, centered around Facebook because Facebook was one of the first to, to come out and offer more than one gender. And the, the, the news story that I found said 58. Well, a lot of them overlap, so I'm not sure uh, how many of those really are different, but they offered 58. I, I looked through them and I said, okay, I think those things are synonyms. I think these things are synonyms. So there might have only been uh, somewhere in the teens or something like that. But if you're, if you're part of a political movement that says, that denies that face, that basic thing, I mean, this is way up front in the Bible. This is not, this is not way back here in the book of Romans. This is something very fundamental, way up here in the book of Genesis. And if it denies that, maybe that would grate against you a little bit. And so it's hard for us to remain politically neutral, especially in the climate that we have today. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes up to Athens and he goes to this place called the Areopagus, and, and, it, and it was a place where all the philosophers gathered. It's interesting that he didn't get stoned to death there. There were other places he nearly got stoned to death or he had to escape with his life, but actually here in Athens, in, in that city, in this place with all the philosophers, that was the place where everybody got together and they wanted to hear his idea. We hear you've got some new strange idea. Come here and tell it to us. Because And, and it says it quite distinctly in the Bible, everybody there gathered daily to hear the newest and latest ideas. It uh, doesn't sound like they were very dogmatic. It doesn't sound like they were very combative. They were interested in hearing everything. They were quite open-minded. And I really wish that we lived in a country today where you could sit down and have a dialogue. But from what I see, from what I see, um, that's, that's really just not possible right now. Facts, truth, none of, that, none of that seems to matter right now. I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that it was, it was really quite humorous. It said, people don't want to hear your opinion. They want to hear their opinion coming out of your mouth. They demand your conformity to their idea. If only we had people who would say, I hear you've got good news for us. Tell us what the good news is. I'm curious. But that doesn't happen. I haven't had that happen to me here. Politics and religion overlap a lot, overlap a lot. 
especially these days, it's very hard for us to remain politically neutral. I desire to remain politically neutral. I, I tried to insult both political parties as much as I could this morning so that everybody could see I'm trying to remain neutral. I wish we had some good radical moderates out there, extreme moderates, who would stand up and, and give a, a good extreme moderate message that people could accept, but it's, it's getting harder. And I don't want our church to ever be split by politics, but there are certain places where we have to draw a line, where we have to draw a line. And if, if our politics become more important than our doctrine, and what the Bible says, we'll draw lines. We have to draw lines. And it won't just be me doing that, by the way. So how does a Christian respond to this? I'll come out first, and there are probably a lot of people out there uh, who, who want to hear this. So I'll, I'll go ahead and concede this. The church has been persecuted. The church has also persecuted. Okay? Uh, and during times when people would not conform to the, the unity, the unified set of beliefs, they were, they were persecuted. Uh, and the Protestant Reformation, okay, so this church has uh, Mennonite heritage. The very first martyr, uh, uh, I, I don't know if you could say he's the first martyr, but uh, after 1517, the first martyr of the, the Protestant Reformation was a, a Mennonite guy named Felix Manns. And his, uh, his disunity from the unified church doctrine was that he didn't like um, sprinkling children, uh, sp sprinkling babies um, when they were born as, as baptism. To him, that's not a legitimate baptism. He said because it's not, it's not the believer stepping forward saying, I believe in Jesus, I want to be baptized. It's baptizing a, a baby. And so he didn't believe in that. And so uh, there, was a, there was this church meeting where a group of them got together, and they didn't call themselves Anabaptists or Mennonites or anything at that time. Uh, they would have just call themselves Christians. And th those other labels were put on them later. Um, one of them stepped forward and said, I don't feel like I'm baptized. I, I look at what the Bible says about baptism, uh, and I feel like believers have to be baptized as a remembered experience after they have expressed faith in Christ. Therefore, I do not believe that I have been baptized. Would one of you please baptize me? That was, that, that was sort of how the movement started. And so uh, somebody baptized him, and they baptized others. And then the powers that be found out. And if anything from Christian history should tell us this, it's a very bad idea for church leaders to become political leaders, okay? To be the same at the same time, at least. If I ever wanted to run for governor, I'd better re resign from this, from this job first, okay? Don't ever let me do both at the same time, okay? Uh, and, and you won't have to worry about that. After my first political speech, I'd get... Uh, you know, I, I'd get I'd get no votes and it'd be over. All right. So anyway, so the powers that be came to them and said, "You're doing something different from the unified uh, beliefs, the beliefs that you are you are commanded to conform to. You're doing something from different from that. You must renounce it." And they wouldn't renounce it. So they took the guy. His name was Felix Manns, and they said, "Okay, if you want to be rebaptized, we'll rebaptize you. We'll rebaptize you a lot." And so they went out to a river in January and cut a hole in the ice, and they, they left him immersed underwater for uh, a good long while. And they called them the rebaptizers, the Anabaptists. That's what Anabaptists mean, the rebaptizers. And they brought him out, and oh, too long. Okay. 
And so then they started fleeing. The Anabaptists started fleeing. Uh, and that was, that was the church persecuting its own. So the church has persecuted. Make no mistake. There's also something very bad called the Spanish Inquisition that maybe you could read the Wikipedia page on. Uh, <clears throat> so how does the, the Christian respond to persecution? Um, with expectation. With expectation. Uh, Jesus talks about it here. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Later, uh, before he's crucified, he says, if they're going to do this to me, what are they going to do to you? Okay? Expect it. It's going to happen. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They're going to excommunicate you. And they're going to make you run for the hills. And they're going to make you live in caves. Do not, do not think that it won't happen to you. I also think that the, the, the Christian ought to respond with a listening ear and with questions that might be able to lead to a testimony and some evangelism along the way. And the Bible says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. So when you are brought, when you are brought, uh, Jesus said, don't even think about what you're going to say. Don't prepare beforehand. Don't make a statement. Don't prepare a statement beforehand because that's you making that statement. When you get there, let the Holy Spirit give you all the words to say. Okay? Uh, and we have that in the book of Acts several times. And the Holy Spirit can be quite a rabble-rouser when He wants to be, by the way. Okay? Ask Stephen. Ask Paul. Um, let the Holy Spirit help you respond to persecution, but respond with questions. Respond with questions, and then respond with a testimony. You might be able to win some people over. Respond with grace and patience. Uh, when the, in the... In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about persecution, about being mistreated because of who you are. And he said, you know what? They may force you to walk a mile if you're uh, carrying their stuff or, or force you into forced labor for, for your beliefs or whatever. And this is what I want you to do. Do more than they asked. Be nicer. Don't be combative. Be nicer than you've ever been to somebody who's, who, who's, uh, who's being that way. And guess what? They'll, they'll step aside and say, what, what are you doing? What's your game? What are you trying to do here? I've treated the other Christians this way, and they didn't respond this way. Why are you responding this way? Why are you treating me back this way? I listened to a TED Talk this week, and it was really good. Um, and it was, a, it was a guy, and he was a jazz musician who's black, and he said, this is why I attend KKK rallies. Okay. That's an interesting idea. Let's click on that. His name is Daryl Davis. And actually, I, I was listening to a different uh, interview or something, and they, they referred to this guy. So Daryl Davis, uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, he, as a kid, of course, he experienced racism for the first time, and he just, it, it was just perplexing to, them, to him. Why in the world would you treat me this way? Because I don't look like you. I just don't get it. And uh, uh, throughout his life, I don't think he ever was satisfied with the answer uh, that anybody ever gave him. So he decided to go straight to the horse's mouth. And he had, uh, as, he, as he became a professional jazz musician, he had, he had a, a manager, a road assistant, and they found out who the, the imperial wizard of the KKK was. This guy named Roger Kelly. So he had his assistant call the, the imperial wizard and say, I've, uh, my boss would like to interview you, like to talk to you, and like to hear a little bit more about your beliefs. And the guy said, okay, uh, we can do that. And so they booked a hotel room, and the Imperial Wizard comes with his bodyguard, 
And then here's Daryl Davis, black jazz musician, with his assistant over here. And when, when they got the knock on the door, he opened the door, and the guy was like, okay. You know, the imperial wizard, he, he's like, this is not what I expected. They stepped in. And Daryl Davis comes over and says, hello, my name's Daryl Davis. I'd like to talk. He shook his hand. And they sat there and had a very tense conversation for a couple of hours, as you can imagine. And then at the end, Daryl Davis says, I'd like to attend a rally. And he said, the guy said, okay. He said, this guy was not trying to be diplomatic with me. The whole time he was telling me he believed that he was more of a human than he was. He invited him. And they finally started going to each other's homes, even. Incredible. The rhetoric didn't stop. The guy, the guy, his beliefs weren't being changed or anything. But it was incredible, the chutzpah that Daryl Davis had to do this. And over a period of years, over a period of years, he won the guy over. And the guy not only stepped down from being the imperial wizard, but renounced the KKK and gave his robes to Daryl Davis as a trophy. And the guy has more than one set in his closet now. Okay? This is not the gospel. This is just a guy talking about racism. We've got a message. This guy was willing to risk his life to get an answer to get in there and be a listening ear and to ask probing questions and to witness terrible evil pointed at him. And yet he was willing to do all of that so that he could understand and maybe so that he could do something about it. And so I would say to you, Christian, you have an incredible message. And there are people out there who do not like your message. And there are people out there who wish your message would go away and wish you would go away. And we tend to avoid them. We tend to stay away. We tend to give them every reason we can to continue hating us. Daryl Davis went in alone. You go in with the Holy Spirit. What is stopping us from reaching out to people who don't like us? We may get persecuted, okay, we, weigh, we may win hearts and minds and souls. We cannot let the threat of persecution make us give up our set beliefs or run away from difficulty. I want to tell you one more thing about persecution. Because it gets bad, okay? It can get really bad. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It can get really, really bad. It can get, uh, I mean, you know, in the, in the book of Revelation, they talk about the Antichrist cutting your head off. That's a nice, quick, easy, painless way to go compared to the people in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Many of them uh, were killed in some of the awfulest, awfulest ways. Like, what mind would think to do that to another human being? But I want you to know one, one other thing about it. In the book of Revelation, there's this scene that John sees. And he sees all the people killed by the Antichrist. And they've got white robes on. 
and they're under the throne of God. And they seem to be looking there lobbying God because they stand there looking at God saying, how much longer? How much longer is this going to go on? How many more need to die? They're lobbying God. Even even on the other side, after they've been killed, you you would think that they would just forget all of it and be done with it, but no. They're standing there, they're saying, God, you know, you saw what happened to me. You saw how horrible it was. And you see what happens to other people all the time. All of us here have already suffered. There are people down there who are also on schedule to suffer the same way. How long are you going to let it go on? And God's response is great. Until the number is met. Basically like that. There's a number. And God says, I can handle a certain amount of persecution. In fact, it helps the church grow. My people will be refined by their suffering, just like Jesus was. Just like Jesus, shown glorious through His suffering. God's people, shown glorious through their suffering. But God, at a certain point, says, all right, I've had enough. And after that, book of Revelation takes a bit of a turn and things get really bad for those who inflict the oppression. Expect persecution. Know why it's there. Be willing to talk to anybody who will listen to your questions and try to venture an answer. You may win them over. Go with grace and patience, empowered by the Holy Spirit to share your testimony and know that when you suffer, God says, there's a limit. They will go this far, no further. They will hurt this many, no more. He is not deaf to the cries of the suffering. But listen to this. This is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. He's talking about people who were persecuted. He says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what, what, uh, what was promised. They didn't get heaven on earth like they expected. But they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed, listen to this, they agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. They put aside one beloved citizenship, maybe not so beloved, and took on another citizenship. And at that point, they knew they were going to be different from everybody else. They agree that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could, they, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. What did Jesus say? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. But one of these days we will have a citizenship with a group of people who are absolutely unified around not an idea, not a principle, not a statement, but Jesus Christ Himself. He is our unity. He is who we ought to be conformed to. And when they attack us, they're attacking Him. But it's our pleasure if we, if we are bold enough to introduce them 
to Him. Because the kingdom that we belong to, I don't know what the the number of citizens in our kingdom is, but even though Christians may be a minority, in every single country where they are, banded together, seen as the church as one, there's no country bigger. There's no country more powerful. Jesus is our unity. Jesus is our conformity. Jesus is our loyalty. Let's stick with Him. Okay? Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your promises. And Lord, please, teach us to be tough. Teach us to be forbearing. Teach us to be gracious gracious and patient. Teach us to be bold. Teach us to never treat people the way we don't want to be treated. But always let our loyalty remain to You above anything else. Above idea, above party, above principle, above any other citizenship. We love You and we thank You. We look forward to the day where there is one country, one people, one idea, one loyalty, one standard. We thank you for your love and your grace and your patience. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You're dismissed. Have a good day.